Amen. Are you thankful that he is all of those names and more this morning? Amen. Uh, I, I want to just remind you this morning of one of these many names that the Lord has put on my heart. And to do that, I want to take us back 2,000 years ago to a small, stable setting in the obscure little town of Bethlehem where a 700-year-old prophecy was fulfilled, where God's own son, the Messiah, was made flesh. And on that day of his arrival, church, he was not wrapped in royal silken linens, but rather in cheap strips of cloth. It was all that Mary and Joseph could afford or carry on their long, hard journey to the city of David. And as you know, this child was not born into pomp or circumstance, and he was not born into position or prestige, but rather he was born into lowliness and born into the company of livestock. His bed was not fashioned of costly gold, and it wasn't laden with precious jewels, but rather it was simply a rough wooden trough used mainly to feed the animals. Yet unto this child born into obscurity on a cold winter's night was given a name which is above every name. It was a name at one day which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. And it was the name of Jesus. And the Lord tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7 as the pastor has made mentioned. 700 years before his birth, the prophet Isaiah told us that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, it says there will be no end. What that means to us, church, is that this is a peace that would remain the same from generation to generation. It was a promise of peace that would be the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, will remain the same tomorrow and 100 years from now if the Lord should tarry. It is a peace that passes all understanding. And I want you to know this morning that over this promise of peace that God made to us, time nor tribulation will ever have any power. The circumstances and situations of life have no authority to rule over this peace. They have no rule to destroy this peace. For unto us was born a prince, church, and not a pauper. Unto us was born one with authority. Unto us was one that was born of royalty, one with kingdom power. Unto us was born a prince whose father was the king of kings and the Lord above all lords. He is a prince with the power to rule over the sadness and sorrows that might come into your life. He is a prince that has the power to rule over the fears and the, the frustrations and the struggles that might surround us. He is a prince, church, that has the authority given to him by his father to speak peace, be still over the storms that might rage around you, over the waves that might try to engulf you. For unto us was born that day in the city of David the prince of peace. It was a peace, church, that the Bible tells us this world cannot give. It's a peace that cannot be fashioned by the hands of man, cannot be formed by the hands of man. It's a peace that can't be found in a package. It can't be found in a pill. It can't be found in a bottle. It can't be wrapped up by man. 
It is a peace, therefore, that neither this world nor its schemes can take away. It is a peace which, according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, surpasses all understanding. It's a peace so strong and so true that the human mind can't understand it, but the heart can feel it. It is a peace, amen, that surpasses all understanding. And in the few brief moments that I'll spend this morning, I want to take us to that peace as recorded in John chapter 14, verse 27. I want to take us to that time and place where Jesus is seated with his disciples at the Passover meal. It is the Last Supper. It was the night before Jesus' brutal death. It was the night of his evil betrayal. Judas, the betrayer, the one who would betray him, has left this setting. He has left the table to gather up his 30 pieces of silver. And the only ones that remain seated at the table with Christ at the Last Supper are his disciples, those who he called his dearest of friends. And it's here in this setting, sitting around the table, that Jesus begins his last discourse. He has his last conversation with his disciples before his death. And these precious and powerful words, as recorded in John chapter 14, are said to be his dying discourse. They were his verbal last will and testament. And John, the apostle, who while seated at the table was resting his head upon Christ, it is he that records these very words. Jesus begins his words by saying to his disciples, Do not be troubled. Do not be anxious, he tells them. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid of the things that are about to come. Don't be worried about the things that I must face and endure. And don't be troubled about the things that you must go through as well. He tells his dear disciples in this setting that he must go away. That he must be offered as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth so that we might have life. And have it more abundantly. But before he speaks these words, before he dies and goes away, Christ includes them and us in his will, church. And in chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus Christ leaves us a gift. He leaves his disciples a gift as well. However, understand, church, that this gift was not uh, uh, precious Items. It was not silver or gold. It was not stocks or bonds. He doesn't leave them a favorite piece of furniture. He doesn't leave them a car. He doesn't leave them a house that has been paid for. There is no piece of earthly property that Jesus leaves behind. No mansions, no jewels, no costly trinkets that they can count and add up. Nothing that this world could offer does he leave. But what he does leave to them and what he does leave to us, according to Isaiah, there will be no end. And we need to understand, church, this morning of all the things that Christ could have claimed as his and said are mine. Of all the things that he could have said, these are mine and now I give them to you. Of all the things that he could have left his disciples and left us, he left us something that this world could not give us. He left us, church, his peace. He says in verse 27, peace 
I leave with you. My peace I give to you. You see, church, this morning, you need to understand that what Christ gave you was his to give. He knew that he was the only one, the only individual that had the right to offer us this peace that passes all understanding. My father gave it to me. Now I give it to you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives because what the world gives is temporary, church. But what I give to you, of it there is no end, he said. Therefore, I want to encourage you like he encouraged his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled and be not afraid. I hope you understand this morning that Christ in his dying discourse... He could have left us riches untold. He could have left us fame and could have left us fortune. He could have left us power and prestige and popularity. He could have left us a penthouse suite on Times Square in New York. He could have left us the cattle on a thousand hill which are his. And he could have left us sunshine every day. He could have said, this Christmas morning, I'll leave a thousand presents underneath your tree. But he had something of far greater value. He had something of far greater worth. Something that Jesus Christ and God knew that his disciples would need 2,000 years ago. And something he knows that you need today and tomorrow and the week after that. God left us something, church, that was not wrapped up in fancy paper and pretty bows, but rather in swaddling clothes and laid in a lowly manger. Something that 33 years later after his birth, church, would be unwrapped. It would be opened, it would be beaten, and it would be bruised so that you and I might have what was inside his peace. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that says is capable of guarding our hearts and our minds in the most difficult of times, in the most troubling of trials, in the sadness of our sorrows. He is leaving us a peace that passes all understanding. To a world this morning that is filled with chaos and crisis, Jesus still says, I give you my peace. To those whose marriages this morning or families this morning or hearts this morning are filled with turmoil and filled with tension and can find no peace, Jesus says, I give you my peace this morning. To that heart that is tired, to that heart that is troubled, to that heart that can find no rest, I give you my peace. To the parent who cries tears over his child's condition, be it physical, be it mental, be it spiritual. To the parent that, that has a child or a spouse in the hospital receiving medication this morning. For those who have lost a loved one either recently or in times past and you still feel an aching in your heart. For those who don't know what tomorrow will hold, to those who are troubled over their finances, troubled over their fears, troubled over the situations of life, Jesus says to you, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Amen. Not as this world gives to you, I give to you. 
all the things that Jesus Christ could have left us in his will, he left us his peace because it was Jesus himself who said, in this world you will have trouble. In this wicked, evil world that is passing away, you will have heartache. You will have sadness. You will have sorrows. You will have answers that you can't find, or questions you can't find answers to. But I want you to be encouraged this morning that the Prince of Peace overcame this world. Amen? Amen. I don't know, church, what gifts are lying under your tree this morning. I don't know what presents you're going to open on Christmas Day. I don't know the trouble or the turmoil or the difficulties or the sorrows that you may be feeling in your soul even this morning. But I do know that 2,000 years ago, the greatest gift ever given to man was wrapped in swaddling clothes and was laid in a manger. And when the appointed time came, which it did, church, for God's gift to be unwrapped and torn apart by the hands of man, it was so that the whole world could discover what was inside that package. It was the prince and the power and the promise of peace. So the truth is, church, as I close with these last comments, before making his way to the cross... As the spotless lamb that went silently to his slaughter because he had peace, the prince of peace included us in his will and said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And of its increase there will be no end. So if you need peace of any form in any area of your life this morning, If you need your soul to be settled, if you need your mind to be at ease, if you need that peace that passes all understanding this morning, you need look only to one place. You need only look to that manger where lay the Prince of Peace. Will you rise with me this morning as we celebrate together the Prince and the promise of peace?
give you a father, Lord, this morning. Come on and love him. Amen. As you're seated this morning, turn to somebody and say, He is the Prince of Peace. Wow. My most favorite time of the year. By far, I love Christmas. Kimberly will tell you that I'm somewhat of a uh, uh, fanatic about opening gifts. I don't know if anybody's like that with me, but I love to open gifts. And a lot of times as I shop for her and spend all of my hard-earned money on that one special gift, I have so much anticipation that I don't want to wait for Christmas Day for her to open that gift. Anybody feel that? I want her to open it so that she can tell me how wonderful I am. And... Uh, and a lot of times I try and bribe her by asking if I can open just one gift early as well, and she never lets me. But last night at about 10 o'clock, the greatest gift that I could have this Christmas is my sister here. And not only, not only do, did I get to open an early gift, but she brought some stocking stuffers with her, and my niece Peyton and my nephews, Gio and Luke, and I will try and stuff them in every stocking that I can find. I'm glad you're here. I am honored to bring this word to you, Emmanuel. If you go with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, the word of the Lord says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Somebody say Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Here's a funny story of a woman who was expecting to give birth to a, a son. She was curious of some names that she could find. So one day as she was walking through the city, she came upon a building, and one of the doors was shut, and on the door it said, Nosmo. She thought to herself, what a unique name, Nosmo. She really liked the name, so she thought, I'll name my little boy Nosmo. A few days later, she passed by the same building. That door was open. The other door was shut, and it said, King. And she thought to herself, what a wonderful name, Nosmo King Smith. So she had this little boy, had him baptized as Nosmo King Smith. After the baptismal service, she went past the same building. Both doors at this time were shut. And what she thought said Nosmo King really said no smoking. Our church staff had an opportunity to go to lunch not too long ago, and we were talking about names that kind of made us laugh. And Pastor Jeff said that he knew of a woman who named her little girl Matanusa. Everybody say Matanusa. Or you might know it better as Made in USA. Ridiculous names, isn't it? Um, you know, there's a popular internet search engine called Google. Well, originally Google was Google, G-O-O-G-O-L, a word for the number represented by one followed by 100 zeros. After the founders who were Stanford grads, um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, presented their project to an investor, they received a check in the mail not too long after, and on the check it was written to Google. And as you know, as well as I do, money talks. So the fate of their company was changed not from Google, but to Google. George Eastman liked the letter K. In the entire alphabet, the letter K was George Eastman's favorite letter. He liked the letter so much that he wanted his company to begin with the letter K and to end with the letter K. Hence, we have Kodak Camera. Nintendo is composed of three Japanese kanji characters. Nin, ten, 
dough, which can be translated, heaven blesses hard work. You need to go out and buy every one of your children and grandchildren a Nintendo. What is in a name? What is it that's in a name? Well, if you're a business, possibly millions and billions of dollars, a name like Nike is thought to be worth about $7 billion, and a company by the name of Coca-Cola is worth about 10 times as much as Nike. The Internet has expanded the global market exponentially, and with so much stuff and so many people making it and selling it, the pool of available brand names and domain names are apparently dried up. There's just not enough original names to go around. Now, naming has become so complicated that in colleges across the country, they actually offer you a class for you to take to learn how to name things. Yes, that class is called onomastics. Onomastics tells us that expanding social structures means expanding name systems. See, when you give a name, you want something original. You want something unique. You want something that's identifiable. When you give a name to a company, you want something that provides the ultimate product recognition. A name that when people say that name, they're instantly reminded of your product. In my lifetime, just like you, I've walked through the aisles of many Walmarts and Targets. Kimberly and I have dined at some of the finest named restaurants in the entire world, like places called McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, La Paria, <laughs> right? You want a product, as soon as they mention it, you know the name. But I need to tell you this morning that I know a nice lady by the name of Susan. I also know a lady by the name Sally. I have friends named John. I know at least a handful of Brian's and probably ten times as many Mike's. But I've only met one Emmanuel, and he is God with us. Somebody say amen. This Emmanuel was the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. Emmanuel was unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Emmanuel is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. No means of measure can define Emmanuel's limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He is Emmanuel, and he is God with us. Somebody say amen. His name is elite. It is unique. It's identifiable. It's distinctive. The name Emmanuel is exclusive. And one day, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is God. See, God didn't need automastics to name his kid. He already knew that E meant God and Imano meant with us, meaning Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I know that for you, this is a, an outstanding concept. I mean, we're talking about God, the creator of the universe, the source of all that is, the great power beyond and the one in all authority, but yet God with us. The answer is yes, and it is true. God sent his son and named him Emmanuel so that all would recognize that he is God's son. About 2.30 last night, the Holy Spirit began to stir in my heart maybe a few reasons that he named his son Emmanuel. 2.30 is kind of early, but I went to the computer because I knew I needed to write down something or I would forget. Here are a few reasons, and there might be many more, but here are three reasons I believe that God gave his son the name Emmanuel. The first one is he named him Emmanuel to remind us that we can have a relationship with him. That he is reachable and touchable. 
The Bible tells us in Acts 17, 24 through 29 in the New Message, or the Message Translation, the God who made the world and everything in it, this master of the sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him, as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable, with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God, not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He is near. We live and move in him. Can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well. We're the God created. Well, if we're the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think that we could hire a sculptor to chisel out God of some stone for us, does it? His name is Emmanuel because you and I need to be reminded that he is real and he's longing for a relationship with you and with I. He's touchable and he's he's visible and he's not so far out of reach. The Bible tells us that he's just as close as the very mention of his name. He is Emmanuel. Here's the second reason I believe that God named him Emmanuel. He named him Emmanuel to remind us that when we face trials and those difficult times in our lives, that he, Emmanuel, is with us. The Bible says in Psalm 27, 1 through 5, that light, space, zest, that's God. So with him on my side, I'm fearless, afraid of no one and nothing. When vandal hordes ride down ready to eat me alive, those bullies fall flat on their face. When besieged, I'm calm as a baby. And when all hell breaks loose, I'm collected and cool. I'm asking God for one thing and only one thing, to live with him in his house my whole life long. I'll contemplate his beauty. I'll study at his feet. That's the only quiet, secure place in a noisy world. The perfect getaway, better than some tropical island pastor, far from the buzz of traffic. He is Emmanuel to remind us that he's just as close as the very mention of his name. There's times in your life and times in my life where we feel the presence of God more real than other times. And when we're on the mountain, he's with us. When we're in the valley or when we're changing mountains, he's with us. He was God in the beginning and he's God today and he'll be God tomorrow. And regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of the battle, regardless of the giant that you're facing, he is always Emmanuel and he will be with you. Here's the last reason I believe that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Perhaps it's to remind the devil that we're not in this battle alone. But greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Hebrews 13:5 in the King James Version reads this. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Sometimes you need to be reminded that you're not fighting all by yourself. You and I have many things in common. We stand in a boxing ring called life. Sometimes we're backed into a corner and it seems the devil throws many different punches, lots of different combinations. And there are times in your life and times in my life where I feel like looking at the cornermen and say, throw in the towel. I can't take it. For you, it may be the punches that the enemy throws at your kids or at your marriage or your finances or on the workplace. And for me, there may be some things that the enemy knows my weaknesses and he begins to throw these different punches. And I feel like I cannot take it. 
one of my most favorite passages of Scripture in the entire Bible, Revelation 12:11. God equipped us with two punches that we can throw. Revelation 12:11 says that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. God sent Emmanuel to, to die so that you and I one day could have life forever. And because of that, we are victorious. That's the first punch you can throw. The second punch that you can throw is the fact that the Bible tells us that they overcame the enemy not only by the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of your testimony. To go through the fire, to walk through the flood, and then to look back and say, I made it and I'm still standing. He's Emmanuel. You know, I I believe, because Pastor gave us the opportunity to choose the name that we wanted to speak on. And in my heart, I knew that I wanted to speak on Emmanuel for two reasons. The very first message that I ever spoke, it was maybe 1999, I I spoke and uh, we sang a song and it's Emmanuel and we'll sing it in a moment. But the other reason that I wanted to speak on Emmanuel is because in this year, 2007, for my life and for my family, this name of God has been more real than any other time. That in the most difficult of times... He says, I'm with you. In the most trying and and the most uh, times where we feel like giving up and saying, I can't take it. I throw in the towel. He reminds us that he is Emmanuel. May this Christmas you receive the greatest gift of all. The revelation that he is God with you. Can you stand to your feet and let's sing Emmanuel. Come on and applaud the Lord with me because he's worth all of it. Come on and lift your hands to the Lord. We love you in this place, Lord. for me. First time I ever flew in an airplane, I was 11 years old. 
Never flew an airplane before. It was Pan Am. We left Trinidad and flew nonstop to JFK, New York City. Never went that high. Never saw such beauty. And I thought, this is wonderful. I thought, this is majestic. It was absolutely. I mean, the sky, the clouds, you could feel like you could reach out and touch it. We got to JFK. It was November 12. They had an early blizzard. And as approaching JFK, the plane did this and this and this and this. I lost a wonderful feeling and another feeling where the little bags in front of your seat becomes available. I've had the privilege to enjoy a lot of beautiful things, and you have too. And the exclamation of it was, this is wonderful. First time I ever saw Niagara Falls. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? Yeah. Oh, it is wonderful. I really, I couldn't. The, 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 you just have to go and see it. And, and there are other places of natural beauty, but the water, the falls, the roaring, the depth. And then I had the occasion of going to the bottom of the falls and getting on one of those uh, little boat-like ships that go near enough to... Oh, it was wonderful. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to India for the first time. Flew into New Delhi. Took a four-hour car drive to the Taj Mahal. And I want to tell you, it is everything they said it should be. And it was and is. The Taj Mahal was built by a prince uh, 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 many years ago in that area of India that was then uh, ruled by the Muslims. And uh, he built it as an exclamation, a statement of his wonderful love for his bride. I've never even built my wife a birdhouse, but I like her really well. But it was wonderful. Because there's this thing about wonderful that kind of uh, encompasses a lot about how you feel about a thing. And, in, and among the names that we hear about Jesus, Pastor Jeff told us he's the Prince of Peace. You ever known him to be that for you? I have. Say amen. And Pastor J.C. tells us that he's not only God around us and above us and beneath us, he's God with us. i got to have that too. And then Isaiah said it this way. And you're acquainted with it, so read it out loud with me. Here we go, everybody. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, in looking at this verse, I have come to discover that some translations render this verse without a comma between the words wonderful and counselor. So it would read wonderful counselor. And in this translation, the King James renders it wonderful, comma, counselor. I'm not really sure what Isaiah meant here to say, but I'm sure of this, that either way, wonderful, comma, counselor, or wonderful counselor, it's powerful. Amen, church? Because he's that and he's more. The word wonderful means marvelous. That's the airplane flight. It means exceptional, 
the trip to Niagara Falls to see it with my own eyes. Uh, it means, the word wonderful means distinguished, incredibly great, such as the king built for his bride, the Taj Mahal. Webster's thesaurus lists three other synonyms for the word wonderful. They are these words. The word wonderful also means amazing, awesome, and astonishing. And when I think about Jesus, I think about that Jesus was wonderful in his birth. Can you say amen to that? How do you know it? Because Luke one thirty one says, put the first slide for me, Jimmy. It says, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, the angel speaking to Mary, and you shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here, here's the, uh, the amazing, awesome, astonishing thing about this. He shall be great, and he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And Mary's inquiring about how this is going to happen. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, this holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. I'm telling you that he was wonderful in his birth because Luke 2 and 7 says, as Pastor Jeff told us, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The fact of the matter is he could have been born anywhere. He could have been this born this century, this year at the Ritz-Carlton or some kind of great palace out in the Middle East where a lot of these oil-rich millionaires have built them their own palace. He could have been born anywhere, but he came in a stable to identify with the lowest of humanity and he is also the prince of peace to identify with the greatest of mankind and he can identify with everybody in between because he is wonderful here's another thought and that is jesus was wonderful in his life his ministry and miracles oh if you read about him if you've experienced him if you know him personally that you know then his life his ministry and miracles were amazing awesome and astonishing because you today are a product of his wonder you remember what you were before he found you do you remember where you were headed before he found you you remember when he messed up your plans because he had better plans wonderful plans somebody say amen by faith Acts 10.38 says this. Let me read it to you. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Jesus who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. I'm telling you, his ministry and life and miracles were wonderful. Mark 6 and 2 says this. And many people hearing him were astonished. And they said, where did this man get these things? And... What wisdom is this which is given unto him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? He never met a funeral that he didn't interrupt and say, rise up and be healed. He never met leper a one or ten. You all out there in radio land? That he didn't say, be thou clean, because he's a miracle working God. He could take five loaves and two fish, and he could do better than any bakery or store could do. Five thousand feed them and have twelve baskets left over, because his miracles were amazing. I'm going to tell you something else. You're not just reading about a God who was... But he is also a God who is and is to come. And I'm telling you this morning, I'm trying to help you with the pastors who preceded me to tell you his miracles 
does not cease. There's not a cancer he cannot cure. There's not a broken heart he can't heal. There's not a clogged artery he cannot unclog. Many of you this morning are a product of the miracle of God. The doctor sent you away with bad news or your family, but you got in a prayer line, you got a prayer cloth, or you prayed for yourself, and God showed up. He still does. Give him a hand clap of praise. Jesus was wonderful in his death. Now, it's kind of hard to conceive how death could be wonderful at all. And because his death was especially agonizing. Don't ever lose the story. Don't ever lose the reality that this salvation we enjoy didn't come to us cheaply. Because, as you know the scripture, but my job is to just remind you and help me to appreciate what this means. At Christmas, Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected of men. Still despised today. Still rejected today. But hasn't stopped him, has it? He said, whosoever believes shall not perish. So, so I'll move further. Isaiah says he was acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. What's so wonderful about this horrendous, very vengeful, hateful, torturous death that the people of his time imposed on him. Uh, Matthew 20, 27 says this about him being crucified and the day he was crucified. Matthew tells us that outside of Jerusalem, in a place called Golgotha, which was actually a garbage dump, he was crucified almost naked. His body was so beaten, his visage was so marred, his countenance was so disfigured. And you'd think that that's enough hate. But Matthew says, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. And they said things like this, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders, the religious elites, they said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we'll believe him. Now, now let, me, let me ask you something here. Uh, if he is Jesus, and he was, and we know because of his miracles, that he could do anything. He could walk on water and tell somebody else to walk on water. Uh, I've already alluded to several other miracles he did. He turned water into wine. He raises the widow's son who's dead. Hey, and you know some of the other miracles. He tells a blind man uh, to go wash in a pool. And when he washes, he gets his sight again. In, 